Crossings podcast community. This week's teaching is called Flipping the Script and is part 13 in our series on the book of Luke. It was taught by Caleb Gilmore on January 14th, 2024. Thanks for listening. Good morning. So uh, back in September of last year, we started studying this New Testament gospel, the gospel of Luke. Uh, It's one of the four stories about Jesus in the Bible. And today marks the 13th week in that study of Luke. And so we're just about halfway there. And just to kind of peel back the curtain about what it's like to do this in a community, but not only to do that in a community, but teach a lot of these, uh, this is always the part that feels like really challenging. Uh, At some point, the stories all start to sound the same, to me at least. Uh, And guess what's going to happen today? More demons. Yay! Uh, But there's also this, like, maybe self-imposed pressure to make every story deliver, to make every story seem unique. Uh, We want to be funny but not irreverent. We want to be relevant while being historically, theologically correct. We want to be critical without being dismissive. It's kind of a tightrope to walk. Uh, You get the idea. And so in order to cope with that, there's just this thing that I've become aware of that I do, and I'm just going to lean into it. I'm going to own that I do this. Uh, This is my shameless attempt to be funny, historically accurate, make some kind of connection, and I've just decided to make it a segment uh, called Culture Review with Caleb, (laughs) a strained connection to our text. Uh, In this installment of this first segment, uh, I want to look at a show that just finished up, uh, The Crown on Netflix. Did anybody watch The Crown? Anybody? Okay, a couple people. Um, I, I would say no spoilers, but I mean, we all kind of like lived through most of it, so uh, the show's on public record, lived history, really can't avoid it. Um, I'm not one of those people, just as a disclaimer, uh, who obsess over the royal family. That's not my shtick. I'm not into the tabloids. Uh, I've not read uh, former Prince Harry's book or watch the Meghan Markle interviews, okay? I do remember Princess Diana's death and funeral. It was like a significant cultural moment in my life, but I never got the Beanie Baby, okay? Um, I'm not a monarchist, especially not after watching the show. Um, And despite some of the show's problems, like trying to make me feel sorry for people who live in a palace... I mostly enjoyed the show. I I really liked The Crown. I felt like it kind of stuck the landing. Um, The final season really summed up what I think the whole show analyzed for decades of dramatized history, which is that human beings just aren't meant to live that way. Like, that's not a fair thing to do to a group of human beings. The Crown, power, even power that mostly exists as spectacle, is something that ultimately crushes our humanity. Those who wear it and those who want to wear it end up harming themselves and others. Those who question it or try to reform it usually end up as outsiders. And by the end of The Crown, I felt this strange blend of admiration, sadness, sympathy, and anger towards the royal family, which I guess is a combination of emotions that you either really love or hate. Um, But these are the dominant emotions that I felt when reading the stories that we're going to read from Luke this week. Luke also looks at issues of power and authority and the abuses of power and authority through the lens of Jesus. And while Luke attempts to show us the upside-down kingdom of God through Jesus' life and teachings, 
Some of these stories have ended up being used to stereotype modern Jews as power-hungry and greedy, things that we want to avoid. And so as we read the stories this week, what I would like for us to be on the lookout for is not others in the text, not the way that other people are categorized or stereotyped, because we're all pretty good at looking at those in power and finding things to criticize. What we need to be mindful of today are the ways that we often stereotype, demonize, and criticize in order to make our own claims to power. So our story this morning begins shortly after Jesus' teaching on prayer, something that Molly talked about last week. This prayer that invites a kingdom other than our own to come among us, earth, heaven on earth. And Luke begins this way. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the one who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed. Back in November, we, we actually really dug into some of the first century beliefs about demons, uh, about how some, uh, there was some connection between the divine realm and the realm of human politics and experience. For a lot of people, everything that happened had a divine significance to it. So we're not going to cover all of that again today, but if that's something you have questions about, I would definitely suggest going back, listening to this teaching on Luke chapters 8 through 9 called Foundational Hospitality, because that's where we really get into it. Um, For now, it's just enough to say that the ancient world in the first century, um, within Judaism, many people saw the world through enchanted lenses. Behind every human malady or political opposition could be a demonic force. Um, there, were, there were evil supernatural forces lurking behind every corner. And this is probably not how uh, we are inclined to see the world today. Though, I mean, if you log on to some of the right websites, you might see people still doing that to their political opponents today. Um, demonic might be an appropriate word, however, for the way our current healthcare system works though we might define disability differently than the first century people, our treatment of people with disability might be just as dark and oppressive as it was 2,000 years ago. So perhaps the most simplest definition that we can give for demonic forces, the ones that we're going to encounter in the text today, is that it's anything that's in opposition to the kingdom of God, this realm where debts are forgiven, where simplicity and mutual dependence reign. And humans live in harmony as if God were in charge. Anything that would be in opposition to that would be what we would call demonic. And so Jesus releases this person uh, from the grips of this evil force that had kept him from speaking, and everyone around is amazed. Free health care, as Amy Jo Levine says, is also a miracle. Uh, but Luke continues. He says... But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Others, to test him, kept demanding him a sign from heaven. But he knew what they were thinking, and he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? For if you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, 
Now, how can I cast out demons by Beelzebul? By whom, if, now, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your exorcists cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out the demons, then the kingdom of God has come among you. So, two things happen after this miraculous healing that we need to focus on, and they kind of structure the way the rest of the chapter unfolds. The first thing that we need to pay attention to is this accusation that Jesus is only able to heal people because he is in league with the dark powers themselves. He's in league with this Beelzebul, the prince of demons. The second thing that Luke draws to our attention is this demand for some kind of sign, supposedly other than this particular healing, that would prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed king of Israel. So the first thing that Jesus responds to is this charge that he is empowered by the evil forces to cast out evil forces. Uh, The people who are not really named or mentioned as a group accuse him of partnering with this entity called Beelzebul, or the Satan. And we've also talked about this a great deal in the past, um, but we haven't talked about the name Beelzebul, this this name that Luke uh, offers up here. And by the time of the first century in Jesus' day, Beelzebul was kind of this catch-all term uh, or a euphemism for evil incarnate, basically a synonym for Satan. Um, In the Hebrew scriptures, we actually find this name, uh, Beelzebul or Beelzebub. It's kind of the same thing. Uh, And it was a reference to this Canaanite deity named Baal. Um, Baal was this Canaanite god who was in direct competition with the god of Israel, who was named Yahweh. And in a story in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 2, an Israelite king actually seeks to inquire after this Baal-zebub uh, to see if he will recover from an injury. And the name change that happens from Baal-zebub from Baal-zebul is sort of a play on words. It's actually an ancient dis, um, because you can see here uh, Baal-zebul, which is actually the real name, it means Baal of the high places or the Lord of the high places, but they changed the name to Baal Zebub, which means Lord of the flies. So they're kind of putting down this ancient competitor of Yahweh, uh, but what we have here is actually Baal um, in the text, and uh, this is just another word for Satan, the adversary, just as Baal was an adversary to Yahweh. Um, and Jesus' response to this accusation is that this is ridiculous and or very good news, if that's what he's doing. Uh, Because if he's doing his work by Satan, then the kingdom of Satan is divided and can't stand. If Satan is casting out Satan, then, a great news, this is not really going well for them. Um, But then he flips the question around. And as we've already heard once in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus wasn't the only exorcist on the block. There were other people in the ancient world who could cast out demons. Um, Sometimes they did it in the name of Jesus. Sometimes they did it in the name of other magical powers, whether that's God or some pagan deity. And so Jesus asked this question, how were the other people like him doing this, the ones that some of these people may have been friends with, some of these people may have been family members with, How were they able to achieve their exorcisms? Was it also demonic, or or was it from a more wholesome source? 
And it seems that the point of the whole story isn't about demonic possession at all, but it's about power. Jesus wasn't a threat because he was casting out demons and therefore more powerful than anyone else. His ministry was in competition with some other groups of people, and he was threatening their turf. It's really not hard to imagine these kinds of religious turf wars uh, if you just like pay attention to anything happening within Christianity right now. Uh, maybe on our best days, Christians will say that other Christians from other groups are still Christians. Uh, but if you get into certain theological debates, like you, you start to pick at that one scab, there are plenty of denominations that like to punch down on other groups of Christians for certain reasons. They may not say it out loud, though nowadays with Twitter, pretty much everybody does. Uh, but there are these ideas that there's some kind of threat from this group. That these Christians who lean more progressive are a threat to our faith. Or that these conservative groups that are more traditional in some of their beliefs ought to be made fun of for their ridiculousness. What this is, essentially, is a turf war for PR. It's this sway that we want to have, either with the masses who are outside Christianity or to try to convince other people to come be on our side. It's for theological dominance. And, it, and the same appears to be true uh, for the time of Jesus within Judaism. There were different groups with different ideas about what it meant to be Jewish, about what it meant to be God's people, and they didn't always get along. And, and so Jesus goes on to defend himself with a couple of analogies. He says, if a strong man is guarding something, he can only be overpowered by someone stronger than him. And this is a claim that what Jesus is doing by casting out these demons is that he's stronger than the Satan or the Beelzebul. And then he goes on this really weird tangent about how evil spirits, when they get cast out, go to the desert, which of course we all know to be true. Um, but then they come back with seven of their friends and make matters worse. Um, to us, this seems really strange, but the point seems to be that exercising evil isn't enough on its own unless something good comes and takes its place. If a person just remains empty, that space will be occupied by something, potentially something even worse. And this seems to be the point uh, that Luke is making at the end um, because someone in the crowd yells out, sometimes, you know, Raphael, like Raphael, I imagine. <laughs> While he was saying this, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts that nursed you. <laughs> but Jesus said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. This unnamed woman seems to be praising the source that birthed and nourished Jesus, this amazing teaching and power that's coming from him, his mother. But the point here isn't that Mary was somehow some kind of supernatural source of Jesus' divinity, but that for Jesus, getting in line with God's agenda was more important than any claim or status of divinity. Jesus seems to be saying that the miracles themselves are not the point. They're just these foretastes of the kingdom, a nudge to wake up those who are asleep to the fact that God is present among them. 
And so after this scene, Jesus turns to that second statement made by the masses, this demand for a sign. Luke says in verse 29, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so the Son of Man will be to this generation. So, Remember that earlier the people had been asking Jesus for a sign, some kind of evidence that the messianic age of shalom and healing was in fact coming in among them. And Jesus says that the only sign that they're going to get is this sign of Jonah. And if you don't know from the story of the Old Testament, uh, Jonah was an Israelite prophet. Um, He was called to go to this Gentile or this non-Israelite nation of Assyria to get them to stop their evil ways. And instead of going, he flees. He runs away. He gets on a ship, he's swallowed by a fish, he lives inside of its belly for three days, and then after being vomited out, actually goes and does what he's supposed to do. Um, In other places in the Gospels, uh, the sign of Jonah is also mentioned. Jesus is talking about the sign of Jonah. But there it's more about Jesus' resurrection, the idea that Jesus being dead for three days and then raised to life is sort of like Jonah being in the belly of the fish for three days and then getting spit out. Um, But But here, Luke does something different. Jonah was a sign to non-Israelites, the Assyrians. And Jesus seems to be saying, according to Luke, that, that his sign will be the reception of his message by those who are considered outsiders by Israel. He goes on to make this point. He says, The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with, some, with, with the people of this generation and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to listen to the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed something greater than Solomon is here. The people of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the proclamation of Jonah, and indeed something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus provides these crowds with examples of what would be called righteous Gentiles, non-Israelites who displayed some kind of sensitivity to God, who heard about what God was doing and expressed interest or listened and obeyed. The queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, comes from this story from the Hebrew Bible about this queen, probably from Africa, who comes to visit Solomon to listen to him because she's heard about his wisdom. The Ninevites, when they listened to Jonah, changed their ways actually the point of the whole story. The Hebrew scriptures have several examples of outsiders who listen to God's message. And it seems as though the universality, the transcendence of Jesus' message is the sign that it's true. It's not wrapped up in some miracle sideshow. It's in the fact that it's accessible to more than one group of people. Real truth, real shalom, must include, not exclude. It's a sign. Its sign is its attractiveness to outsiders and insiders. And if that is threatening in any way, then we may find ourselves fighting against not another person or people group, but God. Later, Jesus enters into another scene. Luke says in verse 37, While he was speaking, 
a Pharisee invited him to dine with him. And so he went in and took his place at the table. The Pharisee was amazed to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but, the in, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? So give as alms or offerings those things that are within, and then everything will be clean for you. So this is actually a really difficult story <laughs> to try to navigate. This is one of those stories that we have to be careful with because many times the portrayal of the Pharisees substitutes for a portrayal of Judaism. It goes something like this. Uh, the Jewish people were burdened by this oppressive law that they couldn't keep. They hated it. They were discouraged by it. And so they were morally corrupt and turned to greed because of their sinfulness. That's kind of like a trope that you hear thrown around. But we have to be cautious because the real Pharisees, the historical group of people, were just one group within a larger realm of Judaism. And, and they didn't leave behind any text. They never wrote down anything to tell us what they actually think. Uh, the only thing that we really know about the Pharisees mostly comes from the New Testament. Uh, the Apostle Paul is the only person who claims to have been associated with the Pharisees, and he kind of left them, so I don't know if that counts or not. Um, it's also not the case that the Pharisees' desire to keep the law of Moses inherently led them to some kind of sinister legalism devoid of any kind of morals. Most Jews did not and do not view keeping the Torah as a burden. Uh, it's actually considered a joyful thing to do. And so what Jesus seems to be criticizing here in this story is this one particular group, this group of the Pharisees, and their practices to the exclusion of other more important practices. Uh, we're also getting this information from Luke, <laughs> who is one of the most Gentile-friendly gospel writers that we have, and so we might also be getting a little bias. But we have to note that Jesus does not slam the Pharisees for their hand-washing practices, this ritual purity act. The tradition is fine. It's that Jesus seems to think that this one group is emphasizing a traditional practice over an inward posture. Just like the demon story before, these conflicts are about groups within the same religion fighting about what is most important, who should have the ear of the people, and what needs to be changed. If you've ever posted on Facebook or gotten into a Twitter fight, or debated something over a cup of coffee, or awkwardly left a small group or a church, you know what I'm talking about. This is about the very human inclination to defend our positions, advocate for our vision of our religion, and to try to diminish what we think are corrupt versions of faith. Jesus' beef was not with Judaism. It was with one particular group within Judaism. The Pharisees' conflict with Jesus wasn't because he was advocating for some kind of end to Judaism. It was because his vision of Judaism was different from theirs. And this is clear from what Jesus does next. Luke eleven forty two 42 says, But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and herbs of all kinds and neglect justice and the love of God. 
It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love to have the seat of honor in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves on which people unknowingly walk. So this word, woe, is not a word that we use very often, at least not today, but it is an election year, so maybe we should bring it back. Um, It's really a part of an expression of horror or distress and sorrow, but it's also more like a prediction. Like, bad things are coming. Like, it's coming now because of the bad things you're doing. And again, there's, there's nothing wrong with the Pharisees' practice of tithing here. Giving 10% of income was expected, according to Jewish law, but the tithing of smaller things like herbs and mint, that's an extra step. The Pharisees were pretty famous for going the extra mile when it came to obeying the Torah. They wanted to treat their own private lives with the same kind of holiness that a priest in the temple would have. That was kind of their calling card. And what Jesus condemns here is the practice of that kind of personal scrutiny to the exclusion of justice. Jesus is upset not about the community of the synagogue, but the clamoring for power and honor within that community. He says they're like unmarked graves, And in the Jewish tradition, corpse contamination was one of the highest orders of impurity. It cut you off from the worshiping body. It made you have to stay in seclusion. You couldn't go to the temple to worship. And so in order to protect people from that impurity, they would whitewash the tombs. They would paint them white so that people could see them and avoid them and know that this was a possible way that they would get contaminated. An unmarked grave or tomb was dangerous because people could casually walk over them or by them and defile themselves without even knowing that they had done so. For us, scapegoating the Pharisees for their legal practices misses the point. The emphasis is on being the kind of people for whom contact with others is not a corrupting experience. Do the ways that we treat others, if imitated, defile or heal? Do our words and actions model shalom and peace and restoration, or are they examples of selfishness? If other people lived like us, would they be more whole or less so? Does our influence in other people's lives help or harm? Are we unmarked tombs or sites of resurrection? The scene continues. One of the experts of the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us too. And he said, Woe also to you, experts in the law, for you load people with heavy burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not lift a finger to ease them. Woe to you, for you build tombs of the prophets whom your ancestors killed, so you are witnesses and approve of the deeds of your ancestors, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Woe to you, experts in the law, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. So these experts in the law, it's a different group from the Pharisees. They're, they're really the scribes. 
They're the keepers of the traditions and the texts. They're the copyists and the teachers. And without them, literally, the scriptures don't survive to the next generation. And so Jesus tells them that they have loaded people down with burdens and that they won't help with. They've honored prophets their ancestors killed, and they've taken away the keys to knowledge while preserving the texts that actually contain that knowledge. It's very likely that the burdens that these scribes were putting on people weren't oppressive religious tasks, but financial fees for their services. What Jesus is concerned with here is religion of whatever variety that puts truth behind a paywall. The kind of religiosity that will take a day off for MLK Day tomorrow, but can't say Black Lives Matter. The kind of religious attitude that fears irrelevance and so conceals the truth about how the Bible was made, about how human culture works, or what science teaches us for fear of losing power. And this message of woe is not just for two groups of people 2,000 years ago. It's for all of us. Whether we are more progressive or conservative in our outlooks, woe to us if we force others to agree with us before we have them over for dinner. Woe to us if we think we could have marched with King but won't stand up to silence at a racist trope. Woe to us if we ostracize and stereotype a person because of a surface-level bumper sticker statement without being curious about their story and what might have led them to that point. Woe to us if we are so enlightened in all the right areas of justice, but can't muster compassion or empathy for someone who is different. I really did not like writing that. But if the message of the kingdom of God is surprisingly upside down, then we too must be upended. If the teachings of Jesus confirm what we already know, we're simply wasting our time here. We should stop the study of Luke right now. We might as well stay home and watch Meet the Press and be angry about whatever it is we're already angry about. We cannot historicize the story to the point that it no longer means anything to us today. We can't make these stories about Jesus versus Jewish leaders because then they cease to be our stories. Whoever or whatever the Pharisees and scribes really were doesn't matter as much as if we don't know what it means to, to be a part of crossings or the church in America without being a source of contamination and woe. Whether that means for Democrats or Republicans, straight or gay, black or white or unaffiliated, if the words of Billy Joel, that great theologian, are not true, you're only human. The authority, the crown, the labeling of in and out, it's not for us. We can't bear the weight of it. The questions that we should ask ourselves are, do we, do we gain our credibility, our authority, our fulfillment over winning arguments, asserting ourselves, dominating others, or do we loosen burdens, listen to prophets, and seek truth even if it means we find out we're wrong? What if being in the kingdom means being willing to be wrong rather than claiming to be right? 
What if it means overcoming evil with good? What if it means taking risks, risking who we think we are for the sake of others? Luke concludes all of these stories by saying, when he, Jesus, went outside, the scribes and the Pharisees became hostile to him and began to interrogate him about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Again, Jesus and other gospel writers portray these Jewish leaders as the primary antagonists of Jesus. They're, they're sort of the enemy. They're lying in wait, just waiting for an opportunity to get rid of Jesus. And, and maybe that's true, maybe it's not. The best way to combat any kind of possible anti-Jewish sentiment here is to flip the script, is to turn this story on us. Are we participating in the gotcha culture that, that looks for people to fail and slip up so that our views are vindicated and validated? Does disagreement with someone lead to dissent and division, or does it lead to more diversity? I think if we, if we have any hope of being on the right side of this kingdom, we must face, we must be the kinds of people who, who wait in quiet strength, who embrace the sign of the outsider belonging, who seek truth over comfort. We must be willing to flip the script on ourselves instead of others. Because as Jesus teaches in these stories, change begins in us first. Would you pray with me? God of weakness and surprise, teach us righteousness without judgment. Teach us justice without hypocrisy. Lead us in the way of humility and truth. May those we despise and exclude become our teachers. May we discover the cause of our fear and anxiety about ourselves and others and you. May we seek to change ourselves before we try to change the world. But may we not neglect the latter for the former. Lead us in the way we do not yet know. And above all, may we sense that you are with us and that you are for us as you are for those around us 